This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast. Carol Walker sitting in for Matt Chorley. On today's episode, we're talking about populism with the politics guru, Professor Tim Bale, whose book Riding the Populist Wave is out now. But first, it's time for our columnists. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. You can either tell me what your favourite song for getting on the dance floor is, or you can give me a suggestion for one of our politicians. <laughs> Libby, are you known to take to the dance floor? Not really, because my husband doesn't like dancing, but if he's not looking and he's not there, I am going to a 60s disco in aid of our local hospital uh, next month, and I, I plan to really knock it out to, I don't know, obla dee, obla da. Who knows? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Rachel, what about you? Well, I love We Are Family, and I'm always, that's the only thing that gets me on the dance floor when it's sort of like a big family event. Um, but for our politicians, I thought you could have Boris Johnson and Common People because he's pretending to be a man of the people, and actually, I really don't think he is. Oh, excellent. And segueing into our big thing at 11 o'clock, we're going to be talking all about um, populists and populism with uh, Professor Tim Bale. Um, good to have you both with us. Um, Dominic Raab, uh, a lot of pressure on him again today. The Times reporting over the weekend how there was a massive blame game going on within government. Um, today, there's a big meeting of the G7 to try to somehow coordinate um, how the biggest powers are going to deal with this future Taliban government. Um, Libby, what do you make of this? Well, I think I think it's time we all moved on from Rob's holiday and whether on whether or not the sea was closed. Um, I think we are going to have to acknowledge the the Taliban. Uh, we may detest their regime, their attitude to women, their criminal justice, uh, but we are constantly dealing with other brutal and misogynistic countries, not least Saudi Arabia. We always have. Uh, the other night on Times Radio, actually, we were talking about Paul Kenyon's marvelous book on Romania and uh, looking at pictures of the Queen sitting next to Ceausescu at a time when the Romanians were. 
under the Kosh in a mad regime. And Ceausescu was still taking money to release Jews to Israel for ransom. I mean, international diplomacy has to work that way. If the Taliban prove able to keep order and to prevent terrorist plans on their turf and maintain reasonable sort of uh, reasonable conditions along their borders, I think we have to acknowledge them. I, I think there's no point sort of virtue signalling and holding our nose. wouldn't work. Um, Rachel, what do you think on this? I think Libby's right, although it has to be sort of <coughs> deeds rather than words. You know, all of this, we're going to, you know, recognise women's rights under Islamic law, etc. That That sounds a bit dodgy to me. But Libby's right. In the end, diplomacy is about... Um, you know, what's in the national interest in protecting, if, if you can, um, you know, thwart some terrorist attacks by keeping links with the Taliban. That's, that's one thing. But I do think maybe Libby's letting Dominic Raab off a bit lightly. I'm not, I, I think you're right, Libby, that we've got to move on from the paddleboarding and the holiday and all of that. But uh, for me, it wasn't the issues what happened over that weekend. It's the fact that for months, he wasn't making the calls he should have done. He wasn't preparing. He wasn't focusing on Afghanistan. Oh, We've yes. known mm. since April. I don't care really where he was on holiday, or you know, but he should have been making calls to Pakistan for weeks or months. He should have been preparing for the evacuation, making sure the interpreters had a way out way before that weekend when he was on the paddleboard or wasn't on the paddleboard. Um, and that really is, the, and I think that's a sort of wider problem for the government, that they're distracted. They saw foreign policy only in terms of Brexit, and but there's no sort of vision of what global Britain is or what, where, you know, who our allies now are. What is the position on um, Afghanistan? They just didn't have a wider view of it. Uh, and that, I think, is a problem for Rob and for Boris Johnson and the whole government, actually. Yeah, and uh, we, we heard uh, in the Times over the weekend that Rob had apparently not even spoken to his Afghan and Pakistan counterparts for some six months, um, Libby, when, uh, I mean, we That's knew the timetable for the withdrawal. No, Rachel's right. I mean, there's been an enormous sort of shortage of forward thinking on, on that. And I think an underestimate of the Taliban, I think it's sort of all right, oh, Western powers, we've put in this government in Afghanistan, you know, they can they can cope. And it's just uh, been apparently to close watchers, apparent that they couldn't cope for a very long time. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I think the, the damn distraction of Brexit has been the worst bit of it. It may in the end prove to have been a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but as a distraction, you know, the combination of Brexit and COVID. But he was the Foreign Secretary. He is the Foreign Secretary. The Foreign Secretary is supposed to be looking widely at the whole world. Yeah, I mean, Rachel, you yeah, very close watcher and, and lots of good contacts in politics. Um, we're hearing some, uh, of course, unnamed uh, source saying that Rob is toast. What do you think? Well, the problem is if um, Boris Johnson gets rid of him, he's got to have somebody else in that role. And I, I, it's this really the decision for Boris Johnson now is, is he going to have an, a cabinet of the best people available to him to do those jobs? Or is it going to be still the cabinet of, you know, stooges and Brexit loyalists who will do what he says? And so far, he's he's chosen the sort of stooges rather than the most talented. I mean, there are so many people on the back benches in the Tory party, let alone people who've been thrown out of the mm. Tory benches. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, 
bit shameful, really. I mean, I interviewed Rory Stewart um, a couple of weeks ago when just you know when when this was all really falling apart in Afghanistan, and he's so knowledgeable and impressive. He's no longer even in the House of Commons. He said he couldn't see a way back to being an MP, although he'd love to, you know, be a pub- serve the public in some way or another. Uh, and that's that's a real shame. So whether or not Dominic Raab himself survives, I think probably it'll be to do with whether Boris Johnson thinks he can afford to sack him. It's more about Boris Johnson, sadly, and his kind of um, confidence in his own position than um, the country. Um, Libby, you've got a column in The Times this morning um, going back to the Monica Lewinsky scandal 23 years ago. Um, Tell us about that. Well, it's because uh, there's a television series which she's collaborating strongly with about the whole affair. And I thought, let's look back, because I admire the way that Monica Lewinsky has been in the last six years particularly, and her wonderful TED talk, which is now taught in some schools, about shaming and cyberbullying and attitudes to victims, male as well as female. So I thought, let's look back at the way she was seen, the way she was treated, while Clinton and Hillary rode on regardless in the end after that scandal. And that she it was probably- Let me just remind some of our younger listeners that, of course, she was reported to have had an affair with the president, wasn't she? Absolutely, an affair um, uh, which he denied. And then it was it was proven by various things, not least a stain on a certain blue dress and so on. And Clinton's uh, saying, I did not have sex with that woman. Um, and in fact, one of the loyally sort of defences of that was that she was doing all the work. Uh, I need not draw your pictures as a family show. It's a bank holiday. Um, but anyway, she, she was, she was absolutely monstered in every direction and hugely humiliated. And she became an international joke. And even people who you'd have thought would have been decent about her, you know, like Erica Young and Nancy Friday, you know, they kind of, added in the, the sort of the, the jeering about blowjobs and so on. But what I wanted to do was to reflect that these days, after Weinstein and Epstein and the Me Too campaign and Time's Up, we are actually harder on men in these cases and less prone to label women as just wicked, temptress trollops and it was all her fault she tempted him. Uh, this, if you want to see some fairly disgusting uh, views about men and women and affairs and blame... Um, today, just look among some of the comments under the piece in the Times. You know, these miserable old dinosaurs who hate women have not quite gone away yet. But uh, it's it's just interesting to reflect on this. But I would advise anyone younger who doesn't know about the scandal actually to read the column because I do, I do run through it quickly and, and explain what happened and how she was treated. Yeah, and it, it is um, fascinating, though, how somebody who as you say, was uh, treated with um, such uh, opprobrium at the time and and has managed to rebuild her life. Um, Rachel? I think it's such an interesting column from Libby, and it reminded me also, you know, even Nigella Lawson has abandoned the word slut from her one of her favourite red raspberry puddings. And there has been a sort of change of attitude and priorities. And sometimes I think people criticise the Me Too movement. They say, oh, you know, the pendulum swung too far and it's now been all anti-men and, you know, women are getting too aggressive and assertive. But actually, unless the pendulum swings 
you don't have that shift of attitudes and it is it, it just sort of reminded me actually how important it is that sometimes even if the sw pendulum sometimes swings a little bit too far to start with that's a way of addressing a balance that needed to be redressed um and the way in which monica Lewinsky was treated was really appalling compared to um bill clinton in that situation although i think you're right libby it's not all um, hunky dory, you know, you think there are the different, you can't imagine a female prime minister with multiple children from multiple relationships not, you know, getting away with it in the way that Boris Johnson mm -hmm. has. Um, but, and even, you know, it's often his wife who gets criticized more than he does still over things. Um, so there is still sexism, but the, but the pendulum has swung, which is a good thing. And there's also something about women and women, because, of course, the great betrayer of Monica Lewinsky was Linda Tripp, who secretly recorded a lot of phone calls where she sort of urged her to talk more about the Clinton affair, you know, and then, then gave them all to the, the, the prosecutors, the, the impeachment. I mean, Linda Tripp's behaviour was awful. Hillary Clinton referred to the poor sort of 22 to 24-year-old girl who'd had these nine encounters with her husband as a, a narcissistic looney tune. You know, she just dismissed her, mm. you know, rather mm. than dismissing Bill, who she she referred to, may we say, as just, oh, he was always a hard dog to keep on the porch. Now, mm. I think the great thing is no one's saying this now about people like Alex Salmond. <laughs> you know, people are much harder on men now. And that's probably quite a good thing, much as I love men. Um, just um, time for a very quick touch on the story we were talking about a little earlier, the triple lock on pensions, the Institute for Government um, adding to the pressure on Rishi Sunak to scrap it um, because it would um, ensure a, a, a bumper increase in the state pension this year. Um, Rachel, what do you make of this? I think Rishi Sunak's desperate to scrap this triple lock, which is looking increasingly illogical. And you sort of have to remember the point about this triple lock was to make the situation fair for pensioners. But the problem is now, if pensioners get sort of 9% increases, which is what seems to be um, coming down the track if the lock stays in place, that's unfair to people of working age. So there's a sort of... Um, you know, wood for the trees thing here. This whole point was about fairness. And actually, the danger is it's becoming unfair for people of working age. Uh, and there is going to have to be money raised. And this seems a completely obvious and natural way to do it. The problem is the Prime Minister, who is worried about alienating his older Tory voters. Um, but I think the Chancellor's just got to face him down. Uh, Libby, um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> There would Speaking undoubtedly be a lot of a lot of flack, uh, political flack for breaking a manifesto commitment. Do you think you should do it? I think rather less flack than you would expect. I think that 9% would be outrageous. Why should it keep pace with everything, these triple values? It's atrocious. Um, so speaking as a pensioner, I, I think uh, the triple lock has to go. I'll tell you something else they could do something about the defer deferral rule. I deferred my pension for 10 years, didn't draw a state pension for 10 years after I was entitled, simply because I didn't particularly need it. And now I discover, almost to my horror, that it's gone up considerably. And I now get about one and a quarter times what my husband gets or even more who had his on time and this just seems to me a desperately unfair thing um, and they should put some work into that I don't think there'd be nearly as much flack I don't think elderly Tory voters are that uh, obsessed with their own 
incomes, uh, I think I think they would accept a much smaller increase. Um, I should say there's one who's not going to be too happy about it. Andrew's got in touch from Henfield. He says the state pension is not a state benefit. I paid into my state pension for 47 yeah. years. Leave the triple lock alone. Um, that is what the Chancellor is going to have to contend with. That was Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Up next, riding the populist wave. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And now it's time for this. Popular, I'll help you be popular. Du mépris de classe, de la spoliation fiscale et de la déconnexion humaine d'un président dérangeant dans ses attitudes. My mother and father signed up to a common market, not to a political union, not to flags, anthems, presidents, and now you even want your own army. Todavía no, todavía no. Va a haber que trabajar mucho más. Pero habéis dado a Vox. Diese Menschen arbeiten nicht. Ich sag, Yes, we're talking about being popular or actually rather populist. The noughties and 2020s have seen the mainstream right of political parties across Europe facing pressure from populist uprisings, whether it was UKIP and anti-European sentiment in Britain or the Vox Party in Spain. But what impact have they had on mainstream right wing parties? Let's speak to Professor Tim Bale. Good morning to you. Morning. Just first of all, can we define what populism is? Because it's used in different ways, isn't it, by different people from different parts of the political spectrum? That's a really good question, because, as you say, it is a bit of a boo word uh, for some people. They use it to label anything they don't particularly like uh, as something bad. Um as far as academics are concerned, and I think actually the, the academic definition has kind of spread out beyond uh, the ivory tower, as it were. When we're talking about populism, we're really talking about an, an approach to politics which tends to divide um, the people, uh, if you like, on the one side uh, and uh, on the other side, a, a corrupt elite. 
that has somehow uh, you know, sold out the people, hasn't listened to it, has betrayed its interests uh, and pursued um, perhaps its own interests instead of you know, the, the, the common interests. So it's that division, if you like, between the, the, the people on the one hand and, and the political class on the other. Uh, that's the, the key characteristic, if you like, of populism. Uh, but there are also other things going on. Populist radical right parties tend to uh, be quite nativist. In other words, they, they tend to say that uh, politics should privilege uh, those people who are you know, born in the country, who are native to the country. And they also tend to have quite a kind of authoritarian um, turn uh, as well. So they're very strong on law and order. Uh, they're very strict on immigration uh, and those kinds of issues. And where have we seen the most successful populist movements? I mean, I guess you could look at UKIP in the UK and the effect that that party had on British politics more widely. Well, UKIP is a really interesting example because, of course, uh, our electoral system in the UK is uh, not very permissive. In other words, we have first past the post and most other European countries, uh, aside from France, the, the biggest one, operate some kind of PR um, system, which tends to allow smaller parties more room to, to breathe and, and more room to, to rise. Um, but UKIP in some ways shows that you don't necessarily have to win seats in Parliament um, to, to have an effect on, on the political system. If we look at other countries, however, we, we can see that in some countries, these populist radical right parties we're, we're talking about um, have actually taken part in government. So they've been full coalition partners. The most obvious example would be uh, Austria, where they've been uh, in, in power uh, two or three times, actually. Um, uh, there are other countries as well, uh, Norway, uh, Switzerland, uh, Finland, Italy. Um, so a whole range of countries, really, you know, um, full members of the EU very often, where you know, parties which are you know, generally given a very, very bad um, press, particularly obviously in the liberal media uh, in, in this country, have actually come into government. And then there are other places like Denmark, where uh, they've not necessarily been fully part of the coalition, but they've supported uh, uh, um, a mainstream right party to govern. So they have been actually quite influential. Uh, I mean, what about places like uh, Hungary? And I mean, what happens when populists do get into power? Well, Hungary is a really good example. And Poland is an, another example of a, another phenomenon that we see where actually it's not the populist radical right, um, the, a small sort of insurgent party coming into power, but it's the mainstream right wing party um, turning itself into, if you like, a kind of ersatz populist radical right party. So uh, the, the party that currently governs Hungary, Fidesz, uh, for example, started out as a kind of mainstream right, right wing kind of liberal party, but has transmogrified, if you like, into uh, a populist radical right party. Uh, and, and you could say the same with law and justice in Poland. And what we've seen there is a gradual erosion, and some people say it's not so very gradual, uh, of, of liberal democracy. So we've seen attempts to try and uh, limit the power of the judiciary, for example. We've seen uh, the, the uh, muzzling of the, the free press, uh, particularly in, in Hungary. Uh, we've seen attempts, some people would argue, to um, rig the electoral system in favour of the, the, um, the, the mainstream right um, party, but now quite a populist radical right party. So there are some serious implications here for um, liberal democracy, some people would argue. Um, but what we've seen is that, for example, I mean, if you look at the EU, they've uh, attempted to try and rein in some of the worst excesses 
um, excesses of populist governments like that in Hungary, in particular their attacks on some basic rights. But once a party like that gets in power, it's then very difficult indeed to influence their behaviour. Well, it is. I mean, the, the EU um, has actually rather kind of weak constraints uh, on uh, members. Once once you've actually got into the EU, um, well, no one's ever actually been kicked out of the EU. Um, there, there are attempts occasionally to use a kind of financial leverage to try and persuade um, countries to uh, toe the line. And this this might recently have had some effect in in Poland, but it is very difficult for an external force like the EU, which you know doesn't have as much power perhaps as some Eurosceptics think it, it has, to actually affect what goes uh, on on in a in a sovereign state. And as you say, I mean one of the problems uh, in some ways when these parties take power or when they morph into um, a more kind of populist style of government is, of course, you know, they they do change the electoral system to their advantage. They do change the media landscape to their advantage, which makes it even more difficult for the, the opposition to actually winkle them out of power. Now, uh, of course, they're not necessarily there for forever. It may well be, and, and this is the case, some people think in Hungary, that you know they will eventually run into problems and there's a kind of gravity that operates in, in politics after all. Um, but uh, they can do a lot to insulate themselves from the kind of normal vicissitudes of, of, of day-to-day politics and, and therefore stay in power for, for quite a long time. However, I mean, I should say, I mean, one, one big example, of course, outside of Europe would be Donald Trump. Uh, of a, what many people would see as a, a radical right-wing populist, you know, getting into power. Many people worried that somehow, you know, he would he would never leave. And, and some people would argue that what went on at the Capitol in, in early January was an example of him trying to hold on. But eventually, of course, he was uh, winkled out of the White House and, and, and we have a new administration. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at uh, what is happening in an awful lot of different countries and indeed, on how these populist movements affect the more mainstream right uh, of politics. Mm. Um, But in, I mean, in the United States, Donald Trump seems to have pretty much swept away all his Republican rivals. But in other parts, if you look especially at, at, at Europe, someone like President Macron appears to be constantly looking over his shoulder at his rivals to the right. He does. And uh, he's not untypical uh, by any means. I mean, one of the things that we, we show in the book, and I should stress that, you know, I'm one of the editors of the book. So I've written parts of it, but um, we have you know contributions on individual um, countries um, by, by different authors. One of the things we see uh, in terms of the mainstream right is, as you put it very nicely, actually, are kind of looking over their shoulder all the time at what the populist radical uh, right or advocating and doing and in some cases actually kind of co-opting and, and adopting uh, the agenda partly through fear that if they don't they will lose voters uh, to to the, the populist radical right. Um, Macron is quite an interesting one because he he came through um, and completely disrupted the, the French system. Um, the, the, the main centre-right force in France um, basically crumbled uh, and he came through the middle uh, and he faced off against um, Marine Le Pen and, and, and the Front National. Um, but since he's been in power, um, he said some actually quite, you know, some people would say quite nationalistic, quite authoritarian um, things in order um, perhaps to try and stave off the threat um, that, that Marine Le Pen and the Front National still, still present. And if you look at the other countries that we look at, and as you said, there's a whole series of, of European countries that, that we look at, um, you can see, uh, particularly on immigration, 
a very, very clear move over the last um, decade or so, and some people would say longer in some countries, towards a much more restrictive policy, um, partly because those, uh, those parties, those mainstream right parties, are very worried about losing uh, the, uh, the, the electorate uh, to those radical right parties. They're also, it has to be said, of course, responding to a demand in the electorate for um, tighter immigration policies, you know, concern about the migration crisis that we saw in 2015 and one that might be repeated after the, the fall of Afghanistan to the, to the Taliban. So it, it is, uh, you know, it's a European-wide uh, phenomenon. But one of the other things that we stress in the book is that obviously there is a trade-off here because um, mainstream right parties also have to worry about um, a potential kind of backlash, uh, as it were, to them moving to the right on some of those issues from uh, other voters. So, you know, well-heeled, well-educated voters tend to be rather more liberal and have, have got more liberal over the years and actually can object to some of the more kind of, you know, nationalistic, authoritarian, anti-immigration politics that, that some mainstream right parties have adopted through fear of the radical right. And I'm joined now by Amelia Hadfield, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Surrey. Hello, Amelia. Hello, Carol. And Matthew Goodwin, who is a politics professor at the University of Kent. Matthew, hello. Hi, Carol. Good to have you both with us. Um, I know you've been listening to uh, Tim Bale talking about his fascinating book. Um, Amelia, let me just ask you, first of all, there was this um, time just a few years ago when Trump had um, stormed into the White House when we had Brexit, when populism seemed to be riding a wave. Do you think it is still powerful or has it ebbed somewhat since then? Well, I think as Tim has very nicely spelled out, it does mean different things to, to different places in Europe and different types of states. So populism is it's not quite perhaps the generic uh, sort of catch-all method of government that we we like to to, to think it is. Um, I think we've seen troughs and peaks. I think it just depends upon the, really who who is sort of using it as a as as a method of government. So you have people who are tremendously good at disrupting the system. Macron, in fact, himself was initially this disruptor. Uh, so was Nigel Farage. So was Trump. And either they stay a sort of intrinsic disruptor in terms of their modality, um, or uh, as they get into power and begin to sort of shift the, the way in which they stay in power, there's an ongoing recalibration of what they want to do with those um, populist uh, methods. I think the way in which Tim, in his book with his contributors, has um, spelled this out is very nice. He's, he's really made a good distinction, I think, uh, between far-right parties um, and then populist parties and then mainstream right parties. And I think we need to be careful because there's there's an operative um, spectrum here and it's sort of clubbing them all together isn't necessarily helpful. Um, I also appreciated Tim's um, initial definition with regards to what, what populism is because it's how strongly you believe in this um, that makes it likely to happen in your country. And that's the sort of people versus political class, the idea um, of the sort of host, if you like, we're the host nation and, and people within it um, who struggle to find a place within it are a, a, an easy, they're an easy topic, if you like, and particularly an easy target. Um, and if they're not well integrated or show little signs of being interested in being integrated, um, then I think you, you have that gap into which populist um, antagonisms uh, can, can really flow. Um, interesting, we've had a tweet from um, Phil Waring. Can you seriously be listing the means by which Orban came to power, ignoring that the Tories have done exactly the same, he says. Um, Matthew Goodwin, do you, do you think that the Conservatives under Boris Johnson, I mean, would you describe them as a populist movement? 
No, I, I, I wouldn't actually. I think there's, there's an increasing um, temptation, particularly on, on the left of politics, to brand everything and and anybody that 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 uh, they don't like as as populists. And I, I think that's incredibly unhelpful. I think the Conservative Party is a mainstream conservative party. I think it has certainly absorbed uh, a large number of Nigel Farage's voters. Um, but on many of the issues that the party is campaigning on uh, around a skill-based migration policy, around uh, sovereignty, uh, levelling up, uh, the way in which it wants to use the state, uh, these are all very mainstream positions. Um so I do think we need to be careful of uh, of the difference between them. And I think, if anything, just to perhaps be a little bit provocative in the conversation, I think, you know, when we talk about populism, we, we always typically talk about right-wing populism. And I think, actually, increasingly over the years ahead, we, we'll probably turn our, te- turn our attention back to left-wing populism. And in particular, I think we'll become more interested in the way in which the attitudes on the left of politics are rapidly changing. If you look at how Democrats have responded to Donald Trump, for example, you've seen a huge polarization in America as uh, highly educated uh, liberals have become even more liberal in their outlook, largely in response to Trump. And that is really aggravating the polarization that we have. And we've seen the same in Britain with Remainers becoming much more positive about uh, immigration after Brexit, becoming much more uh, convinced uh, in, in their ideological view. And I suspect that's where we'll end up in five or ten years, is talking about the impact that this populist era has had on the left of politics, not just on the right. Um, uh, Professor Tim Bale, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the left in a minute, but what do you? where does Boris Johnson, in your research and analysis of this, fit? Would you... Uh, and he's not a classic populist in many ways, as uh, Matthew has pointed out. But would you say that he um, sort of drew on some of those populist um, movements or some of their themes? Well, I mean, I think if you look at his leadership of the uh, Brexit campaign in as much as he was the leader, I mean, clearly there there was uh, an attempt to pit, as it were, the, <clears throat> the, the, the people against the elites. And, and, and that was very effectively done. Uh, I think, you know, as... Matthew says, you know, when we're talking about the Conservative Party, we are still talking, generally speaking, about a mainstream um, Conservative Party. But, you know, many people, many critics of the government, obviously, would point to some of the things that they're doing uh, and point to some parallels, um, albeit in embryo, with what we've talked about already in, in Hungary and Poland, with regard, for example, uh, to you know, a, a kind of hostility towards uh, judicial uh, interference, as they would see it. Uh, some people would, would talk about what they see as voter suppression when we talk about, you know, the, the voter ID bill, which is essentially getting rid of a problem that isn't uh, really there. I mean, I don't think we're anywhere near um, in, in Britain um, a Conservative Party that is turning itself into Fidesz or, or, or Law and Justice. Um, but, there, you know, there are some elements there. Perhaps they are more performative uh, than they are um, substantive. But, you know, uh, there's always been a performative element in, in populism. Uh, and in some ways, that's that's one of its strengths. It doesn't necessarily tie uh, the people who who use it um, to particular policies. Um, it, it's a it's a useful rhetorical device and it certainly has an appeal 
uh, to some voters. But it also does create tensions, I think, with the Conservative Party. And I think, you know, immigration, which with Matthew was talking about, is an interesting one there. Uh, and that's a challenge for all Conservative parties, actually, and, and, and centre-right parties across Europe. There is a tension between, on the one hand, this need to appeal to a, a kind of more nativist, nationalist take on on immigration and a more restrictive um, take on immigration, which is very, very popular, it has to be said, as Matthew has pointed out, uh, on the one hand, and on the other, the fact that that perhaps has negative uh, economic impacts, at least for the, 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 the economy as a whole. And some people would argue that, you know, one of the, the problems with Brexit, um, particularly, you know, on the right, is it's not actually really a particularly kind of free market approach to the economy. It's a rather kind of protectionist approach, um, which which perhaps sits ill with the, the Conservative Party's, you know, more traditional emphasis, at least since the 1980s anyway, on a much more free market kind of conservatism. Um, Amelia, I mean, Tim touched there on this um, question of migration and refugees um, the EU is is grappling with this even before the Afghanistan crisis. And there are a lot of concerns about uh, large inflows of refugees. Do you think that that is likely to uh, provide a further boost to these populist movements in elections? We've got coming up key ones in Germany, for example, um, later in the year. Yes, it, it could well do. Um, bear in mind the migration crisis um that occurred began in 2015 and then rolled on, rumbled on for a few years afterwards, certainly had a, a huge impact in the way in which uh, migration, immigration, security, uh, borders and um, topics like these and the sort of securitization of that language uh, was was drawn upon by by parties left and right um, up and down the the political spectrum. Um, and I think if there's a sense that member states within the European Union and those beyond the European Union are are being asked um, to to step up and to support if they can do it in a way that works nicely within their national interests um, and aligns with the ideological you know, predispositions of their of their of their government, that's fine. But I think if if they're feeling that they they're being shoved into a corner and 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 demanded that's when there's a, a bit of a pushback um tim was right i think when he was talk, talks a little bit about the the rhetoric and the performativity aspect um of of populism the problem is it populism tends to concentrate uh, sometimes dangerously um the particular narratives that work and then after an election or after um uh, a, pol a policy decision, um, it, it's very difficult to sort of walk that back, okay. uh, particularly if you're working within um, um, sort of a series of interlocking institutions like, like the European Union. I think it, we need to bear in mind, though, that the profound humanitarian need, um, which is a, a, a very real um, issue um, and a, a, a civil issue and a human rights issue that I, I, I do hope transcends um, some of the nativist and populist elements that, that tend to make up the rather more tribal um, makeup, if you like, um, of populism across Europe. Um, lots of people getting in touch uh, on Twitter. Hurry up. Henry says, strange to think that Johnson pit ordinary people against the elite. More honest to say that post the Brexit vote, the elite tried to overturn the popular vote. And uh, someone's texted the word populism is polite political nomenclature for racism and xenophobia. Um, Matthew, is there an argument that says that perhaps populism just means politicians who are a little bit more in touch with what the voters actually want and perhaps it shouldn't be pa painted or portrayed as such a, a dangerous uh, idea? 
Well, I, I think firstly, there is a very distinctive tradition of populism. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally not of the view that, that being populist is, is just being popular. I think if you go all the way back to the 18th century, the, the, there's a long line of, of movements that are very distinctive in, in the style of politics that, that, that they use. But at the same time, I also agree with, with some of that sentiment, whereby we tend to talk about populism as though, for example, it is inherently um, anti-democratic, it is inherently ethnic nationalist, it, it wants uh, citizenship to be restricted to, for example, uh, white Britons, uh, it wants to bring back the death penalty, it's highly authoritarian, etc., etc. Much of that uh, is very misleading. Um, most populist movements in Europe uh, have adapted themselves to, to democracy, albeit advocating a different conception of democracy. They, they advocate the original uh, direct conception. They want to put the emphasis on, on the popular will, um, and they're less uh, interested in the more procedural aspects uh, of democracy. And most populist voters have adapted to the reality uh, of our multicultural diverse societies. There are actually only minorities of populist voters in the UK, for example, who you know, still cling to, a, to, a, to an exclusively heavily ethnic conception of who we are. So the problem we have is, is when we have these discussions and we sort of fall into these stereotypes and these very misleading narratives, we tend to aggravate the, the sort of alienation and disillusionment that many voters feel because they look at you know, academics like us talking about populism in a way that, um, that uh, doesn't resonate with, with their everyday experience. And I do think that's part of, of the problem, the way that we talk about Boris Johnson, for example, and we, we throw around very crude comparisons between Boris Johnson and Viktor Orban, um, I don't think is helpful uh, in terms of where we are. Uh, and it probably reflects the way in which the groups that dominate our conversation today are both culturally and geographically are very disconnected from the groups that are voting for these movements. I mean, okay. we don't really have many non-graduate working class voices in media today. It's just not really something that we have, not only in Britain, but across much of the Western world. So the voices that are um, uh, fueling these movements are often also simultaneously absent in much of our national conversation. That's all from us. You can catch up with Matt on Times Radio Monday to Friday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.